Dotnet Rocks episode 659 with guest Billy Hollis. Recorded live Tuesday, April 12th, 2011. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklin's.net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering video training on Silverlight 4 with Billy Hollis and SharePoint 2010 with Sahil Malik. Order online now at franklins.net. And now here's Richard Campbell. Hey, this is Richard Campbell here at Mix, uh, up in the hotel room at The Hotel, sitting with my friend Billy Hollis. How are you, Billy? Richard. I'm doing good. And uh, here we are at yet another crazy conference. Well, you know, this, I ended up here almost by accident. Really? Well, VS Live is next week here in Las Vegas, and I'm speaking there. Mm -hmm. Rocky and I are doing a full day workshop, and, 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 uh, so I get to do a lot of the business oriented application development stuff that I like to do there. Sure. And I've been, I've been traveling all over the world for the last few months, doing a, a lot of training and a lot of consulting and a lot of prototyping. And so my wife said, you know, you need to take some time before v- VS Live, before Visual Studio Live. Sure. And go and just decompress a little bit. And Vegas is a good place to do that if you don't gamble. Yeah. If you don't gamble, if, if the vices of Las Vegas aren't, you know, your vulnerabilities. Right. So, I'll, and, I'll I, and for me, it's not the gambling, it's the darn buffets. It's the, but yeah, that's another <laughs> vice you have to watch out for. But so if you avoid the vices, you yeah. get to go to shows and such, and the service is typically very good mm-hmm. in most of the establishments here. So it's a good place to relax. So I said, okay, I'll just go get, I'll, I'll go spend a few days there. And then I look at the calendar and go, well, Mix is yeah, there. Mix is there. So now it's a business to, trip. Yes, now it's a business trip. Get to spend some time <laughs> seeing folks like yourself yeah. and catching up on things and uh, poke my head in on the most interesting sessions at Mix. For sure. And and very interesting group of sessions here, too. It's it's a quite a mishmash of webby stuff. It's quite a span because yeah. you go all the way from the HTML5 and uh, IE9 stuff, mm-hmm. which, of course, there's a big segment of the industry that needs that badly and is waiting on it through what I believe are going to be some interesting Silverlight things coming up later in the conference. And, yep. of course, Windows Phone 7 is rolling right along, and they've got interesting things to talk about. Are these projects you're working on these days? Where, where, how do those technologies factor into your day-to-day work right now? Well, we we shifted to XAML-based development mostly, right. except for just a little bit of iPhone development. We shifted pretty much entirely to XAML-based development. And you're saying XAML because ago. you're... You're doing both WPF and Silverlight? Right. I don't know what to say. It seems clumsy to say WPF and Silverlight. No, I like XAML better, too. I'm glad to hear you say that. And for us, it's a matter of we'll look at your circumstances Mm -hmm. and decide, should it be WPF or should it be Silverlight? Being in the healthcare world, sometimes WPF has some things that make it a better choice. Depends on circumstances. Probably goes about two-thirds Silverlight, one-third WPF. Interesting. So So we shifted to that world, and of course, it was then a natural extension to go to the phone. So we are doing some phone work on a project I really can't talk about until the client decides to announce it. Sure. What are the deciding factors that put you to WPF? Well, those change with every version, don't they? Yeah. Right now... The things that would shove us in that direction are the need for rich local data storage. So if you were doing a home health application, right. you're going to have to have a database on that machine yeah, because sure. you don't know when you're going to get connectivity. Um, internal corporate apps are somewhat simpler to deploy. If you know it's going to be inside the corporate firewall, mm-hmm. you can deploy off a shared network drive. Yeah, not you don't have deal. to have IS anywhere in the, in the, the pipeline. Sure. So that would drive you that way. 
touch is more um, complete and you have more control in the WPF world right now than you do with Silverlight. Although right. we'll, we'll, I'm we'll sure that'll that, be addressed. That that will change. And then there are edge cases. There are things that WPF knows how to do. Silverlight does not. Mm-hmm. So, for example, WPF has something called a visual brush, hmm. which says, I want to take this visual surface that I'm rendering right here and take a copy of it and maybe transform it bigger, smaller, flip it, rotate it, and also show it somewhere else so that the two of them are in sync. I see. Now, there are some interesting medical applications where you can imagine that being very useful. Yeah, sure. I mean, need- in the imaging scenario. That's exactly right. Yeah. So Silverlight doesn't know how to do that. Therefore, if you're going to use capabilities like that, then you would go to WPF. Well, and also you, you get it for free. This is simply a uh, a method, right? Boom, you can That's do right. it. That's right. It's easy as pie to yeah. do. Uh, there's just really nothing to it. The the most common example you see technology-wise is people do reflections in WPF. Though. Right. So you can get true reflections in WPF. You you have to spoof reflections in Silverlight. Is it decoration? Well, it's not. I mean, yeah, reflections are decoration. Okay. But these other capabilities where I need to echo the information because of the nature of the application, mm-hmm. that's not decoration. Yeah. That's, that's real functionality. That seems real functionality. And normally, you think about the complexities of manipulating Im- images like that. that. That's a non-trivial piece of code that's been made trivial. Right. And up to now, we have also chosen WPF if we needed multiple screens that needed to coordinate with one another. Because mm-hmm. you really couldn't do that at Silverlight 4. But based on what I see in the mix published session list, uh, that's a feature of Silverlight 5. Right. And so we'll be getting multi-screen support. They're going to talk about that in a session here. So that's one That's one off the checklist where we would have gone to WPF earlier, but now, now we'll still be okay with This is with an option. I mean – it almost feels like if Silverlight gets the whole set, then why would you use WPF at all? Yeah, if you get enough access to local things, there's just enough difference between the two that the syntax does get in your way. I teach classes, of course, on this stuff. Sure. And I, I warn the classes at the beginning. Sometime during this week, I will make a mistake and say, no, I'm sorry, it's that way in the other one. Yeah, right. And I have to adjust the syntax a little for whichever one I'm in now. So it is an annoyance. I'd like to see everything come together, but I don't want to lose the smooth, easy way of doing things in WPF because uh, it, I don't want to have to be forced out of those things it will do that Silverlight does So you'd not. like the teams to be together, but not at the expense of the capabilities you currently got. Not at the expense got. of some of those very nice capabilities. Sure, yeah. yeah. I'm, and I'm, I also appreciate the fact that it feels almost like the two teams are pushing each other, that they're each adding capabilities in different areas, and then in subsequent versions, those features merge. Yeah, and I think I think we're seeing some, some unification, uh, unification, for example, at the designer end. Sure. Because that's kind of a, a natural place. For, for things to come together, you don't want to be working on on duplicating a lot of visual designer effort mm-hmm. on the two tools because they're so similar. Does the cross-platform capabilities of Silverlight play much into the kind of work you've been doing? It doesn't play into what we do, mm-hmm. but I could see it being important for other people. Sure. That is the – it's almost a checklist item when you go into companies to say, okay, do you have anybody who needs to run this software on a Mac? And one out of three will say, yeah, we have a few. Right. Okay, that's nice. But it is rarely a game breaker one way or the other mm-hmm. that you can do it. So it's kind of a nice to have. But, you know, we work in, we work in software that is complex enough 
so that you're talking to devices and things like that. And the more you tend to do that, the more likely you are to be Windows only. Right. Um, I think the the whole portability stuff made a lot more sense when we thought about Silverlight being more of a public-facing thing. We don't think about it so much that way it's anymore. It's more the internal line of business apps. Right. And it's extremely powerful there. Mm-hmm. Extremely. The line of business apps and some of the other things you can do with Silverlight or go even deeper into WPF still are quite a ways beyond what HTML5 will give us. Sure. Look, you know, we get into this all the time, don't we? Yes, we do. The HTML5... I I have to always say this because people tend to take a view of partisanship toward a particular technology. Yes. That if you support technology X, you must therefore be against technology Y, yeah. which is the competitor to it. I'm not that's I don't feel that way. HTML five, I hope, is gonna give us better websites. Yeah. I hope major, so too. I mean, most a lot, there are a ton of websites out there that just suck. <laughs> I don't know that HTML5 is going to suck it, save us from sucky websites. No, it's probably not. But I hope it will at least open people's minds a little bit to maybe it will be the catalyst for some of these companies to say, you know, let's think about what our website should look like. We can do better. Experience. We can do better. Let's sure. get some designers to help us. So I hope that it will have a positive impact there because it's so desperately needed. Having said all that. I, that's not the world I live in. Mm-hmm. There are certainly applications where you where you need a lot more control over what goes on in front of the user. You need uh, a, a canonical example might be a call center where you just absolutely must have precise control over every keystroke the person does. Sure. Uh, then in that case, you, you need you need more powerful client based software. And I don't see any surprise about that. I mean, that's. That's diversity, man. Well, it's always That's been the way that the world way. Is. It's yeah. always been that way. We've never, we've always had this, this uh, dichotomy since the beginning of the web between yep. the standards-based stuff and the more proprietary stuff that mm-hmm. happened on the client. I don't really see that going away. But I also soon. think you see that in the competition models as well. That if you try and build a generic app that supports everybody evenly. You end up being clobbered by the guy who focuses only on one particular platform with an optimized tooling for that platform. Yes. And I would have hoped that some of our experiences on seeing the very rapid rise of applications on iPhone apps, as they're referred to on iPhone and, and iPad, and those things aren't written in, in, in HTML5. HTML variant. No. They're written in a powerful client technology. Right. And the fact that, that that's an enormous success story ought to tell you something about the value of that model. For sure. But, and what's interesting about when you reference iPhone on that is Jobs started out saying with the iPhone, you will build your apps in Safari. He, he, the App Store came to later yeah. almost under duress when people started jailbreaking the phone and installing their own stuff on him without his participation. I, did, I didn't really realize that he started out with that. Those original his- announcements said, oh, no, if you're going to build third-party stuff, you're going to do it all through Safari. And well, if if Steve Jobs has learned the lesson, I don't know that he <laughs> has. That's the question. Like, I I feel like we're resisting the truth. We keep seeing over and over again that native apps win. Well, see, I look at so many things from an evolutionary biology perspective. Mm-hmm. And from that perspective, monocultures are always bad yeah. because they don't adapt to changing circumstances. Right. So you need diversity. You need choice. Otherwise, as circumstances change, you're too sluggish yep. in, in, in trying to adapt to that change. Well, and, and 
I mean, that's a great scenario, a great way of describing the problem, because it's the same with us as developers, too. If we want to believe there's one set of tools we need to learn and everything we'll ever need to build will work in that. Yeah. We want to believe that. And, you know, that has caused that's caused a lot of grief for me over the last couple of years in the sense that that one true way mentality, which is almost the polar opposite of the way I look at things, Mm -hmm. causes me to feel a sense of detachment from the developer community. Uh, I don't blog anymore, and I don't uh, really do a lot of public advocation for for anything, because if you do, you just you just have to deal with these guys that 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 have that one true way mentality. Right. And the worst of them, the worst of them are like drunk sports fans. <laughs> okay. You know, you've, you've been to the game, oh, right? Oh, yeah. And it's... Uh, I gotta pick a team, cause, just to, to, to personalize it. And so I'm, I should say up front, I'll pick any, I'll let you, you pick an you NFL pick. team, Richard. An NFL team, okay, an the NFL Chargers. Team, the Chargers, okay. So, you know, you go to a game and you're for the other team and there's a Chargers fan behind you. Right. And he's drunk and obnoxious. Yeah, go Chargers, your team sucks. <laughs> Chargers rule, you rule. <laughs> you know, everybody that does any serious, time and athletic events has has knows this you sat by that guy you sat by that guy there is no good solution to that problem is there no you you can't challenge him it only makes it worse that just makes it worse. yeah all all behaviors except withdrawal amplify the problem that's right so you just have to tolerate it yes and we have too many guys Mostly guys, because I don't see girls do this very often. Let's be sexist. Let's be outright sexist about it, because this makes the women look good, doesn't it? Uh, this is a boy thing. This is a this is a guy thing that yeah. they tend to 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 get into that 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 mindset, and it's it's part of I think the human social model. People want to be a part of something bigger than themselves. Right. They want to identify with something big and something meaningful. Sure, that's where the whole sports team thing comes from. because yeah. it doesn't. What difference does it make if the Chargers win or lose in the grand scheme of things? Yeah, not at all. But there are people who will get depressed if they lose. But you know, it's also an, it's like the civilized outlet, as much as it's obnoxious. It's the civilized outlet for the alternative, which is this tribalism and us really banging each other's, over each other's heads with, with sticks. So there's the natural tendency to tribalism. Right. And I would agree that it's better to do it that way. Right. But to be obnoxious instead of violent. Yes. So, but <laughs> that's but as much as we can hope that's, for. That's, that's, yeah, that's kind of, yeah, the least bad. Um, <laughs> but because of that, and because I've seen a certain amount of intense intensification over that, of that in the last few years in the Microsoft ecosystem, as the, the, the world has gotten bigger, more complex and such, uh, in, in the .NET e- ecosystem, you've seen almost this kind of evolutionary filtering of People who are, are capable of dealing with the complexity and dealing with the, the platform, those are the ones who stay, and and the others tend to leave, mm-hmm. and so you get a little more homogeneity right. among the, the, the community after a while, even though it's bigger, to a certain extent, it's more homogeneous. Right. I, I mean, I remember the days of the you know PC and the web and such in the nineties, and Gosh, that was just all over the place, wasn't it? Yeah. It was a, a, tons of ways to do everything, and every one of them had issues, and nobody could claim the fame of ideal anything. Right. But now people try try that. We want to, yeah. And certainly there are segments, sometimes large segments, of the software development world where one particular way of doing things does make sense. Mm-hmm. 
But there's this bad tendency on the people who see that and don't, and don't work in other scenarios to say, this works for me. Right. Therefore, it'll work for you. And yeah. you really ought to do it. And there's something wrong with you if you don't. Yeah, if you don't a, join my tribe. That's that flip there where it suddenly, now yeah. there's something wrong with you not agreeing with me. And that's where I just kind of want to pull back because I don't get my validation that way. Right. Uh, I don't get the validation from being part of a tribe of developers. Mm-hmm. My, my validation has always come, I think, in this industry from the user, the business aspects of mm-hmm. things. I guess it's because I started so small as back in the PC world with one and two people. You know, not very big tribes back yep. then, was it? We tended to operate on our own. We didn't have the internet to tie us together or right. bring us together. Our association was with the user, and I've retained that. Mm-hmm. And I think psychologically that kind of puts me at odds with a lot of the developer community. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik. We've been blown away by the uptake and the quick adoption of Silverlight. It's no secret, though, that the platform didn't provide for consistent integration with the web analytics services. Well, not anymore. As you might have already heard, Microsoft announced its Silverlight analytics framework, which solves the above-mentioned problem. But what's also interesting is that Telerik already provides support for the framework. Telerik's the first UI components vendor to offer handlers for the Silverlight analytics framework. Using RAD controls for Silverlight, you can immediately benefit from the advantages of the platform and start tracking the statistics of your applications. You can read details and download the handlers at Telerik.com Silverlight. And hey, don't forget to thank Telerik for supporting .NET Rocks on their Facebook fan page, Facebook.com Telerik. Yeah, it's easy to get separated. I'm dealing with a lot of IT stuff where same thing, the ivory tower effect of IT not being in front of their users, seeing what the problems are. Yeah, yeah. And if if you work in a certain space and the people that work in that space don't share this whole tribal thing, then you can pretty much ignore it. Mm-hmm. So I work in the UX, the user experience space. Mm-hmm. So I get the the advantage of of working with people for the most part, and and the people who call me, the companies that call me, tend to be the ones that are out there in that diverse set, mm-hmm. and they have gone in some cases to the tribes, right, and said, okay, solve this problem for me, and the tribe says, well, you got to do it this way, yeah, and they go, well, I don't think that applies to me, yeah, and so now they're looking, is there somebody out there who will who will look at the situation and actually decide does this apply or not right. instead of coming to the checklist yep you this is what we're going to use yeah this is the way we do things so this is what you're going to use and i don't mean to you know i don't i don't want to carry this analogy too far hey you know what they build some of these folks build good software they, like, they do build you, good you software you are successful and productive I, and i that's why i want to give them credit i there's look there's enterprise software i don't want I don't want to touch right? because there are aspects of it I don't want to care about. Some of the security and scalability things, those are those are hard problems in, to solve. Yeah, and, and a specialty. I spend a lot of my time on scalability yeah. problems. And I understand that there are people who have been in the situation where they had to take a less than optimal result that kind of grew, mm-hmm. that, grew by, that, that came about by aggregation instead of design. Mm-hmm. Uh, accretion might be even a better word. <laughs> accretion, yes. Over time, instead of being designed. And they have to clean that mess up. Now, yes. nobody likes cleaning up messes. No. Do, do we? But then they take that to say, well, you should never have made the mess. You should have done it right from scratch. And that's just in a small company. 
you just don't necessarily have the expertise, the well, time, it's just, everything. It's wishful thinking. Yeah, it's I, never going to happen. I firmly believe in the idea that we really did make the best choices we could make at the time with the information at hand. Right. And it, sure, hindsight's twenty twenty. Nobody built that mess. It grew out of necessity. And now we have an opportunity to do something about it. And, and th- the idea that you should have done it perfectly then – well, companies that adopted that idea for the most part didn't make it mm-hmm. because because shipping's a feature too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, uh, so, so I, that's a that's a that, that kind of psychological disconnection has 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 I, I get to avoid that because people people outside that realm call me. I'm glad there are folks out there taking care of that stuff. Mm-hmm. I don't want to, um, but but I'm also glad that I get to to work with people outside our community. Because they 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 have a little more connected um, psychology to their own circumstances. Sure. And that you know we've talked about this before about me and you and a lot of the other f- folks at this point in the industry being fairly easily bored. <laughs> so I want the change. I don't want the one true way. That's yeah. Boring, isn't it? I mean, as far as I'm concerned, and I don't say that just to be. Gosh, I want to get my jollies from from just the sake of doing something different. Yes. I want to find a place where something different is appropriate mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then enjoy the process of figuring out what that something different ought to look like. Well, and it, I mean, it's almost like if you're not growing, you're dying, right? If you're not trying something new routinely, uh, you, you're losing track. You're falling behind. You're, you're, you're not enjoying the potential of the, the new things that are happening. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm on a, almost a campaign, I guess. I like it when to, you're on a campaign. To really. try to get people away from that. That one true way mm-hmm. example, because I just, I see the tendency sprouts up for that. And as you said, sometimes it's not that those ways aren't good. It's that the universal applicability doesn't necessarily follow right. from the fact that they work. And, you know, one of my, one of my personal sort of pet peeves working in the Silverlight and WPF world is MVVM. Oh yeah. Which I think is good. Mm-hmm. And I think there are certainly places that need it. Um, but you know, the conceptual load that people have to take on to get in, to move into this new world is pretty high already. Mm-hmm. So do you, do you necessarily want to increase that? Well, you might. I think that of the, of the typical corporate applications that I see people moving into Silverlight, more often than not, MVVM is going to be a decent fit for them. Mm-hmm. Um, if their developers are at a certain level of yeah. being able to understand it, their, the size and complexity of their app. But you know, these small one and two man shops that sort of knock things out. You know, I've done, you've probably done this too, architectural reviews and things like that mm-hmm. over the years. And I've looked at these shops. They knew in many cases, say circa 2002, that they should have done their beginning ASP.NET applications with, with N-tier. Right. But they didn't. No. They didn't because it was a more conceptual load than they could afford at the time. Right. Well, we've got people in that same boat today in the Silverlight world. Mm-hmm. They, they need to get something out there. Their application is fairly small, fairly, fairly self-contained. And as far as I'm concerned, the the benefits of NVVM, while they are certainly tangible, are not as big as the benefits of interior development. Mm-hmm. And so that compared, to, especially if you don't do unit testing in the UI, right? Which unit testing is is certainly has lots of benefit, especially in stateless server code, which mm-hmm. I'm. I'm, I'm I think is where its biggest benefit lies. I think it has less benefit, but some in the client. Mm-hmm. Um, but telling people, well, you just ought to unit test everything and have MVVM, et cetera, 
is like telling them you should have written it in tier or yeah. you should write it in tier. Sometimes they're just not going to. Well, you just added more conceptual load, yeah. right? I'm, first, I'm going to tell you to use a fairly sophisticated pattern on how you build your app so that you can do a practice you're currently not yeah. doing. And from my perspective, if whatever bandwidth they've got on conceptual load, mm-hmm. if they move into the XAML world, is better consumed by understanding, for example, how to do templating right. and how to work with data and use the data binding system in in interesting ways because that's going to be reflected in things that are going to make the application uh, more valuable maybe even a game breaking they're actually those are the things that the user is going to benefit the most from. that's right the user is going to get tangible obvious clear immediate results from that well and i appreciate your thinking here billy because you're talking about a conceptual load budget yes there are this many you have you know this many units you know, let's call them jelly beans. You've got yeah, 10 yeah. jelly beans worth of conceptual load resource available to you. And learning data binding properly is going to eat up three of them. And, and learning templating is, is going to do another it, two. It, it, right. and, and yeah, you go down. Do you have enough at the end for MVVM? Well, if your team's big enough and your app's big enough, you might. Then you might. But if you don't, you don't. And prioritizing that list of learning is an important part of the process. Yeah. You can get MVVM nailed and not do data binding properly. And you've got some big problems. That's right. You've got an app that that is beautifully unit tested and will be flawless from that internal perspective perhaps if you've done things right but it doesn't doesn't give the value to the user right. that you could have given them sure uh and and too often that's hidden because the users don't know i mean yeah. they, they take almost what you give them until you kind of until they see mm-hmm. the kind of things that you're able to do with these advanced technologies um so i i see people they move into this world and they spend huge amounts of time looking at uh, all the different possibilities for shells, Prism mm-hmm. and, and MVVM Lite and Calibre Micro, which I think all of them have good areas to cover. That sure. there are there are particular projects where you go, okay, that's a really good fit for that. But there and and each of those frameworks seem to have a niche too. They're that's different right. from each other. And then there's a niche which where none of them fit. Really, I think where you get to you get to a team that's small enough. Um, and and I'm working on my own shell to kind of address some of this. Because, I, you know, we've talked about this a lot before on the show. In Nashville, we tend to work with these medium-sized companies and these mm-hmm. smaller teams. Um, we, we, we need to keep the conceptual load down. So I'm doing a show that is oriented, optimized for um, for approachability. Mm-hmm. I want to be for people to be able to learn how to use it in a day right. instead of a week or a month. Mm-hmm. And I think it's no exaggeration to say that to, to master Prism, you're looking at the better part of a month. Um, we had a great show recently with Brian Noyes talking about Prism 4, and, and you get that sense of size that when pr- projects at a certain scale, Prism is really going to serve them. But it's it's got to – and it really, it was not just uh, any one thing. It was a variety of different things. You've got a distributed team, or yeah, you've got yeah. a very large number of forms, a, a certain level of complexity in both either the development process and or the app itself. Prism seems to address it quite well. And so if, if you've got the bigger project to spread the investment out, mm-hmm. Prism can make a lot of sense. So you got a lot of jelly beans to work with. Yeah. But you step down another level and you look at something like Caliber Micro, which mm-hmm. I think is, is a very interesting and pretty well done implementation. Uh, it's often used as a starting point though. Right. In a sense, so is Prism. They don't give you a lot of the surface of the app, mm-hmm. which I think for starters, if you're going to have an approachable shell, you want that surface. You want the ability for the transition effects and some of the other app management things mm-hmm. to be built in. And typically, these things don't build those in. Right. They build in the plumbing underneath. 
Um, but you look at Calibrum Micro, and I think it's pretty well done. But there's about 30 interfaces you need to understand, mm-hmm. abstract interfaces. To, and, and in many cases, you need to implement them for your your ultimate what you're going to use, the right. you're going to use. And again, that's just that's just a higher investment uh, and less approachability. I mean, look, <laughs> I hate to say this, but I, I work with developers all the time that they don't know what an abstract interface is in right. the sense of, of designing one themselves mm-hmm. and or implementing one. They, they, they really don't know what that is. Sure. And, and it, should, it, should it be that way? Should these people learn it? Well, yeah, they should. But gosh, they're busy. Yeah. And there's so much to learn. Yeah. There's so much to know. It's only so many jelly beans to go around. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so I, I, you know, I try to, uh, I try to campaign a little bit against this one, two, one true way thing. Um, I talk a lot about prototyping, which I think helps. Um, because our view of prototyping has long been all the way back to the Windows Forms world mm-hmm. that you do multiple prototypes instead of a single prototype. Have we, have we talked about this on the show? I'm trying to remember. I don't know if we have actually, but it, it, because most people's reaction to prototypes is if I build one, they'll ship it. Yeah. That we put our best ideas into the prototype, we show it to the users, we refine it, et cetera. Right. Well, you know, that probably was not a terribly suboptimal way of looking at no. it in ASP.NET, Windows Forms, and other stacks because your degrees of freedom weren't that big. Right. But now your degrees of freedom are huge. You can build almost anything you imagine. We do a lot of prototyping, and I recommend teams do this too, with Photoshop. Really? Well, yeah, because, see, in Photoshop, you're a lot less likely to worry about technically how am I going to do this. Yes. And you're more, much more about, worried about what's the effect on the user going to be. Yeah, how does this look? How, does how this do they respond it to it? And you know, you, you need to move beyond Photoshop for things like the interaction and the yeah. When you get into a carousel or anything like that, right? But you can get the the general ideas mm-hmm. about how the pieces of the UI fit together in Photoshop. And we have we've done that in many cases. We've never had a case where we we came up with a design in Photoshop we couldn't then implement in XAML. Yeah. But if you start in XAML. You tend to start down the road of doing things, kind of spoofing what you've always done before. Right, what you know. So, and and the multiple prototypes helps you break out of mm-hmm. that because multiple prototypes then say, well, okay, we've we've done it this way. We've done it kind of our traditional way. Let's set that aside. Pretend we cannot do that. What would you Just, do? What would you do? If you couldn't do that, what mm-hmm. would you do? Come up with something new. Come up with three or four or five ways. And now that's getting us away from the one true way thinking. We're thinking in terms of options. Right. And we let the users at the end of that process kind of guide us to which one of those makes the most Aren't sense. Aren't you almost pushing against like business process reengineering here? You're rethinking the way users put data into a system or find data in a system. That's right. And it's it's not uncommon at all for our design process to include some business process sure. reengineering. Yeah. That's very common because that, that tends to have a bigger impact on productivity. How engaged is the management level of the, you know, the non-dev level in this process? Um, Pretty engaged at the level of let's determine what are the absolute business requirements. Let's let's make sure we understand. See, you know, Alan Cooper talks about tasks versus goals. That's sure. one of the useful ways of looking at it. The, the 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 business management understands the goals. The users often are at the level of tasks. Right. They know the things that they're supposed to do to get yeah. done before they go home. And and when you ask them for requirements, you get a list of tasks. That's right. And if that task is just, well, that's the way it's been done for the last 10 years because some manager who was fired eight years ago put that in place. Right. Well, okay, that's just the way it is. Yeah. 
So yeah, you want to do a little bit of process reengineering to get rid of some of that. And the end result of that can be, well, we've had cases where productivity went up 40, 50% wow. by metrics, by, by throughput metrics mm-hmm. on people. Number Just, of things entered, you yeah. know, speed of lookup, speed of it's conclusion, a, that kind of thing. So we like to see the, the multiple prototypes help in that regard because because they do help us kind of rethink the entire process of what the user is trying. What, what's the task flow yeah. for that user? What do they need to do next? And, you know, I'm playing around with all kinds of ideas in that space. Mm-hmm. For example, we could meter our client applications. There's a design principle called desire lines. Desire that lines. Term? No. Um, you've seen desire lines, even if that term doesn't yeah. mean anything to you. If you've ever seen a network of sidewalks set up pretty much on a rectangular basis, and then you've seen the paths through the grass. Right. And then, yeah, people the, take. the grass has been worn away That's through right. that. That's, That's a, a desire line. Right. That's saying this is where the user wants to go. Right. This is where the user needs to go. Yeah, it's the button with the markings rubbed off of it because That's, people keep pushing that button. Right. That tells you where where people are trying trying to go. Well, right. There's no, there's nothing to keep us from metering our software and figuring out where people are moving from place to place. And mm-hmm. if they're having to go through five steps to get there instead of three, but they do it all the time, right? Why can't we create so, that path? Shorten them? that desire line. Yeah, but you're never going to do that until you have a fairly stateful, intelligent client-based user interface. Are you? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's why it's a natural fit for the XAML world. Because you, you, you can implement those kind of design principles in a way that you can't with older stacks and even to a certain extent with HTML5. At Franklin's Net right now, you can get a DVD with over 11 hours of Billy Hollis on Silverlight 4 or 14 hours of Sahil Malik on SharePoint 2010, each for only $6.95. Order online at www.franklins.net. Are you looking to change jobs? Infusion Development has offices in New York City, Toronto, London, Dubai, and Poland. Infusion has hired a whole handful of happy .NET Rocks listeners. Contact me for an introduction at carl at franklins.net. I'm really fascinated by the instrumentation around this. I mean, how do you collect that data in a way that you can clearly see we need to surface this feature closer to the, to the main menu? Ah, well, it's a whole lot easier if you think about it in terms of every element the user looks at has a URI associated with right. it. And that's certainly true in web apps, mm-hmm. and it should be true in for, – for, for me, when, I, when we do navigation shells, mm-hmm. we do it the same way. All the screen elements have URIs associated right. with them. So anytime that the shell is loading up a screen, it's really processing a URI to yep. load that screen. And so you're logging these. I'm just, we're just logging the URIs. Right. And then we data mine against that to see they went from here to here to here to here to here. Well, the same way that we do pathing analysis in websites. Yeah. The guy goes from this page to that page to this page to that page. Exactly the same process. Yeah. So – um. So I, I'd like to see a lot of people in the, in the, in our, in our industry be, um, less certain about what they think users actually do and let the users help tell them what they do. Well, then and I like that's, the that's idea. That's just one example of how you might do that. But I also really appreciate collecting that data empirically rather yeah. than asking the users what they want. That's, ex- yeah. Watch the, what they do. The, yeah. It isn't then just somebody's axe to grind about, because anytime you get together a group of users. Mm-hmm. You'll never get perfect representation. No. And, and you usually get one vocal, yeah. sometimes obnoxious person that wants to push everything in the direction that makes sense for them, whether or not that's good for the group of users as a whole. Yeah. Feature, yeah. Feature selection by who shouts loudest. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I find it's really, I, I tell people in the, in the class I teach, which contains a fair amount of design 
and prototyping concepts. Mm-hmm. One of the things I'll point out to people, if you get a group of users together and you ask them, do we need to put in feature X? Somebody will always say yes. Yes. Absolutely. You define the feature for them. Of course, they're going to ask for it. Of course. Somebody's going to fuck. It's inevitable. Even if they've never had that feature before, somebody's going to say, oh, that's a great idea. I could use that. Mm -hmm. And so you have to have a certain level of objectivity in in gathering out what people really do. And um, when you get to the point where you're doing multiple prototypes, for example – there's almost an intuition people have about, oh, gosh, that fits my workflow. Mm-hmm. And they stop worrying so much about features, and they certainly stop worrying about this thing should be moved three pixels over, and I don't like the color and right. stuff like that. They're, they're adding value at a much higher level. Mm-hmm. And that, 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 I think, helps it's them It's interesting to, to try and push up the user's participation like that as well. And I was reminded of that Henry Ford quote, if I'd asked the people what they wanted, they would have said faster horses. That's right. Yeah. right? I mean, you, there is a part of this process that you need to do to bring new visions to the user. Well, that's the way I look at it. Mm-hmm. Of course, there is there is the kind of left brain versus right brain mm-hmm. dichotomy that we have. A lot of developers really don't want to do that. Yeah. They want to be more code-centric. They want to be more technology-centric. Tell me what you want. Tell me what you want, and I'm just going to build that. And, sure. And so you get results out of that that, that violate design principles mm-hmm. because, for example, the user says, I want feature X. Yeah. And they, okay, so they've got 12 features already and they come and say, we need feature X. And the developer goes off. He's perfectly happy to go build feature X. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's doing what he likes to do. Sure. That's more code, more, more database stuff, more whatever. This is how we get those horrible settings dialogues, right? Exactly. Just or more features stuck into it. I, I was at a conference for medical software in December and I went around to about 10 different manufacturers of the same basic software. Right. And I won't go into detail about what it is, but it's a pretty rich client-based software. And at least eight of them had the same screen. It was a huge array of rectangular, identically sized buttons with icons that were pretty much randomly chosen. Yeah. As best Unintelligible. As yeah. Yeah. Now, I u- I basically spoofed up a screen that was kind of a composite of all of those, and I used it in the design class <laughs> and put it up and go, let's see how many design principles this violates. <laughs> okay. Apparently and all of a, them. A bunch of them. Yeah. Well, not all of them, but, but a bunch of them. For example, it violates what we call the Pareto principle, the 80-20 rule. Right. We know that 20% of those features provide 80% of the value on average. Right, and yet you've given them all the same amount but, of real estate. Yeah, but yeah. so why aren't there different sizes? buttons yeah for different for things that are more commonly used mm-hmm. there's also a design principle that says the amount of time it takes the user to choose an option is proportional is inversely proportional to the size right so number one if when you add lots of options and they're all identically sized you Adding a new feature now degrades the value of the old features yes you're making it worse you're, yeah you you are subtracting value mm-hmm. do you factor that into your cost benefit Equations? Well, most developers don't. No. That, well, there's always this mindset of more features is better. More features is right. better. Well, this is the paradox of choice element. You finally get to a point where there's so many choices, nobody will choose. Nobody, yeah. <laughs> and the fear of choosing incorrectly is greater than the need to choose at all. Right. And and certainly, in some cases, you've just got too many features. In right. other cases, what you need to do is get inside the mind of the user enough to say, well, they use these five. All right, fine. We're going to make those big, obvious, easy to get to, and we're going to hide all the rest in an advanced thing right. that they get to later. Um, and, and yet, how often do you see in business applications people do that? I mean, 
even the Windows teams figured that one out. Yeah. And, you know, they've got still. The I'm, I just suddenly flashed to the the Internet Explorer settings dialog that keeps scrolling oh, and scrolling yeah. and scrolling and scrolling. And somewhere down there is the setting you need. Uh, you think you hope. <laughs> and, yeah. So it's the scroll bar of broken dreams. So uh, I, I, there's a, I, as I said, I feel that sense of detachment because there's so many people in the industry who really would rather just kind of keep writing the code and not think about the yeah. left brain, uh, the right brain things. And that's fine. And we need those people. And again, I, I, I'm, I try to be very tolerant, but I wish they gave a little more understanding and respect for the situations where the design aspects and the user experience and the right brain thinking are important mm-hmm. because I think that I think we could certainly stand to ramp that part of our industry up a lot. Yeah. How do we get back to, well, you don't, you don't even think about this. I mean, in the real world, we talk all the time about delighting the customer. There are so few apps that create delight. That's right. And it's not that there isn't any. I mean, I would argue that what makes the iPhone work was, and now with WinPhone 7, I see the same effect. It's the first time I've seen people delighted with a device. Yes. And they didn't even know they wanted it before they saw it. Yeah. And and that's kind of where we need to get to. But that requires a level of empathy with the user, a level of understanding, a level of imagination that I don't think developers consider that part of their job, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in essence. That that they'd like to just kind of delegate that off to this mystical class of people called designers. And the problem in our space is the designers will never know enough domain knowledge right. to be able to do that right. Mm-hmm. And Consumer industrial design, particularly consumer-based products, designers are consumers. Therefore, they can do a pretty good job there. Sure. And you see some pretty, imp- I see some pretty impressive products. Yeah. Um, the interesting thing about getting in the design world is you, you start to see examples of good and bad design. Mm-hmm. You notice them much more. I, I mean, I have a coffee maker and a coffee grinder that exemplify what I think are principles of good design. Right. I've gone through a two that had bad design. Mm-hmm. When I do my design classes, oh, I did, when we, I, I do, I do some in Norway for a, a training company there called Program Nutvikling, and they're located in the old airport terminal for Oslo. Oslo has a fairly new airport. Right. The old airport terminal was turned into an office complex. And okay. That's where their training is. So, as part of the design class, I send the students out into the building, saying, <laughs> "Find examples of good and bad design." Because they're out there. Yeah, they're building. out there, and they never fail to come back once they open their eyes and notice that those things are around them. And that's, I think, developers need to do more of that. There are things like elevator world. buttons. And- that's elevator buttons. Yeah, um, I, one of the slides that I have, I think you alluded earlier because we talked about it. Sure. Was uh, in the from the Marriott in uh, New Orleans where. The placard, the G for the ground floor, was worn off on the placard right. because people are pressing that round placard thinking rather it's a the, button. Rather than the button beside it. That's a that's bad design. Right. As opposed to the elevators right here right. in Mandalay Bay, which have a completely different design. Mm-hmm. With a, well, they still a, have a round button. They still have a round button. But the placard's different. It fits into the placard. There's a slot in the placard. Right. And, and you just... You start you know. to notice that. It puts your finger where it needs to be. Yeah. So, um, so developing that sensitivity is part of this process of learning to leverage XAML technologies. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you're going to go all to all the trouble of learning XAML and what you're going to put in front of your users is no different from what you would have done, 
And I mean, I see too many WPF applications that are effectively Windows Forms. Yeah, they've recreated designs. Windows Forms. Well, and I'm thinking about, I think we talked about this before the show as well, transitions, right? This whole, yeah. I finished filling this form, I have to move to the next form. And in, in WinForms, one form disappears, the other one appears instantaneously. And, and you need a little, you know, page two of five to know you're That's on right. the next page. Visual indicators, feedback. Mm-hmm. Those are all, those are all design principles. I find that stuff fun, Richard. Right. I think it's fascinating. But it's, and it, the, it, the, but it's easy to discount too. So then I look at that at WPF and I can see a stack of pages on one side, folded over pages on the other side. And when you transition from page to page, you see the page flip. That's, yeah. We have done designs not dissimilar to that. Right. Um, and for example, with, with say value converters. Okay. Mm-hmm. So people in the XAML world understand what a value converter is. Uh, they allow you to change one data type into anything, another data type or a graphic or whatever. And people don't think to use that in ways as creative as I think they should. In healthcare application, for example, we had uh, one system where we wrote a value converter that takes a body mass index mm-hmm. and turns it into a graphic, which is fatter if somebody's BMI is higher. Right. Uh, that visual sense is is a valuable part of of letting the user instantly find out what they need to know. Or also, yeah, well, immediately you knew you typed the wrong number. Yeah, that's right. right? I mistyped this guy's BMI, he's skinny, and now but he, he's got a fat graphic. He's got a fat graphic. He's yeah. going to catch that much better than looking at the number and trying to go. That's right. No, it's high. Yeah, you could just kind of parse parse through the number. Sure. So um, so yeah, reducing that load on the user, that that perception load. Uh, on them. I, I find that stuff fascinating and fun. It integrates psychology and neurobiology and evolutionary biology and general design principles and what goes on in the real world. It brings all these things together into our profession. And, you know, as we said, I'm, I'm easily bored, so that makes things much better <laughs> for me. I wish there were more developers that looked at it that way. There's lots of opportunities there, I think. It, we, I, the interesting thing that's happening now with these new technologies is that the expectation level of the user is increasing. It's a, and and we're getting new technologies that that make them have that higher level of expectation. They expect touch. They will expect gesture after they get used to the connect, right? And such. And and that's it's going to be a challenge to us. I don't even know how to use gesture yet. I don't yeah. think anybody does in real apps. Yeah, we're going to have to figure that out. But. I mean, the Connect product we've got today is a 10-foot product. It's designed for the, the big screen in your living room. Right. The the three-foot version of the Connect, the one that should be mounted to a monitor, is going to be a different beast because it's going to be less about whole body and more about facial expression and hand and shoulder movements. I should be able to see that you're tense or yes. frustrated. Yeah, absolutely. The, the app should be able to tell that. And, and we're going to have to use some imagination. I was thinking just recently about the possibility. I was thinking back to the fact that in graduate school, when I wrote on the blackboard, mm-hmm. that my handwriting, when the, when the letters are four inches tall, looks the same as my handwriting when it's a half inch tall. Sure. I think that's true of most people, isn't it? Yeah, but, but an interesting truism. But, but think about that. You're using a completely different set of muscles to do it. Yes. So what that means is you could draw your name in space in large high letters. Mm-hmm. You could sign your name in space. Sure, just by the way you moved your hand. Yeah, that could be your authentication mechanism yeah, for applications. And nobody would be able to spoof it. No, because it is a, a course of gestures. Of course, we're already dealing with the fact that Kinect can tell by posture and pose and so forth yeah. who's who. 
Yeah. You know, my, my Kinect setup at home, each of my girls can walk to it and it flips the accounts. Like, it, and that's just the first generation. It, it's, it's really quite startling what the potential of that is. And, and yeah, this is a special time for innovation. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's kind of where that detachment bothers me and the one true way stuff bothers me because that tends to dampen innovation when you think that way. It's not a time for that kind of dogmatic safe thinking. We've got too much going on, too many possibilities, too many things rolling at us, mm-hmm. the rising level of user expectations. And I'm a, what I'm, it really concerns me because our ecosystem seems to be oriented toward the safety. Let's make it everything one true way standardized and you know i saw this i saw this before mm-hmm. i saw this in the 1980s i sure. saw ibm get that way right and then when the wave of innovation of the pcs came along and all the interesting thinkers were over there it was i don't know how long would you estimate i think it's probably about 10 years that ibm went from preeminence to virtual irrelevance yes and it's had to come back into that market a completely different way. A completely They've different way. They've never owned the desktop again. Yeah. They've never owned the hardware business in any real right. sense again. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't, I don't want our ecosystem to have to go through that. I'd rather we be open-minded enough to adapt to these technologies and be the leaders. Sure. Instead of being squashed. And except we're on the cusp right yeah. now. Well, Billy. Always fun to talk to you, my friend. You know, I, I I have such a great time being on this show, and I always get wonderful feedback from the from the listeners, and I absolutely love that. So it's a pleasure as always. I wish we could do it more often. You bet. And well, we've got the new comments engine now, so folks can be able to comment directly to you on the show on right. the website. I'll, I'll make sure I read that from time. Yeah, to time. you bet. And we'll uh, we'll see what happens. Okay. Thanks, Richard. You bet. And uh, we'll talk to you next time on Dotnet Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a